Hello and welcome to In Conversation with Lisa Burke. I hope you've had a wonderful summer, even if it's been in the shadow of COVID and quarantine remains for some places. Many people are now feeling a little more relieved with the school structure recommencing. And for university students, the term is about to begin. So it's my great pleasure to talk to Catherine Leglu today, who is the Vice Rector for Academic Affairs at the University of Luxembourg. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. Now, Catherine, you were born in France. You grew up in Liverpool in England. You studied modern and medieval languages at Cambridge and then continued there for your PhD in medieval Occitan literature. You've taught French language and culture at universities across the UK, Queen's and Belfast, Bristol and Reading. And last September, you moved here to join the University of Luxembourg. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So my first question really is, your role, Vice Rector for Academic Affairs. What does that mean? Well, basically, I'm in charge of everything that relates to teaching and learning, especially at bachelor's and master's level. So my tasks include making sure that the teaching is of good quality, making sure that the academic calendar is followed. I also coordinate with the Luxembourg Learning Centre, which is the university library. Also, I deal with numerous procedures and policies relating to exams, to progression and to graduation. So quite a full load then. Yes. Now, the university itself, it was founded in 2003 from three institutes. It now has three faculties and three interdisciplinary centres. Mm-hmm. For some people, this is a little bit of jargon. So I'd love you to give us an overview of the structure of the University of Luxembourg and what it focuses on. Well, basically, we have three missions, which are teaching, research and service to society. And in many ways, our three faculties and our three interdisciplinary centres reflect that perfectly. Each interdisciplinary centre, in fact, grew out of one of the faculties. So our science faculty produced the LCSB, which focuses on biomedicine, um, diseases such as Parkinson's. It also is connected, as is our faculty of law, economics and finance, with the SNT, which is much more about human-machine interaction, but also includes initiatives such as finance. And then our faculty of humanities and social sciences, produced the CIDADH, which is a centre for digital humanities and history. So in each case, in fact, each of the centres grew organically out of the research strengths and the interests of this university. And when it comes to service for the country, Luxembourg is quite a unique place. I can see that some of the topics, some of the subject-specific areas are those in which Luxembourg already has a strong business base. That's right. And also, of course, there's another aspect which is extremely important, which is Luxembourg is one of those very rare countries that's completely multilingual. Um, So our education that we offer is bilingual, in some cases trilingual in the bachelor programmes. And some of the degrees that we offer reflect that as well. Notably, for example, primary education, where we have to train primary school teachers who will be able to teach in the trilingual, sometimes four languages, school system that we have here, and other aspects as well that very closely mirror the important features and strategies of this country. The most recent innovation is the introduction of a bachelor programme in medicine, which is launching this September. And again, the idea is to train and to produce medical staff, specifically, hopefully doctors, who will be able to navigate a very multilingual environment in the very special context of Luxembourg. 
Well, that was reflected recently in the Times Higher Education Guide, which ranked Luxembourg University number three worldwide for its international outlook, which is really, I suppose, no surprise given the absolutely international nature of Luxembourg as a country. And by dint of that, its population, it is, as you say, incredibly multilingual. So just thinking about that multilingual capacity... It also brings some headaches, I suppose, because you want to encourage as many people as possible to view Luxembourg on their list of choices for university application. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned medicine, which is, you know, one of those incredibly worthy subjects to study. But there might be some people coming from Anglophone countries, which are not perhaps as brilliant at languages as those from Luxembourg. How can you encourage people who haven't got the language skills to say it's okay here, perhaps, or is it not okay for those people to apply? It's absolutely okay if you want to do a master's. Most of our master's programmes are taught exclusively in English. Um, Some are not. For example, we offer a master's in Luxembourgish studies, which obviously plays to the strengths of somebody who either already has Luxembourgish or has learnt it to a high enough level to be able to do that master's programme, in addition to other forms of training. I would definitely encourage somebody to consider applying to the university. When I say many of our programmes are bilingual, they very often combine French with English or German with English. A very, very small proportion of them have a little element of Luxembourgish, but not much. So in other words, if you're somebody who uses English a lot more easily than, say, French, you can still study very successfully here, even at bachelor's level. And similarly, for example, our psychology programme is very often predominantly taught in German you might actually find that your English plus a good knowledge of German will push you through. And why not? You know, one of the features of an education is actually practising language in a very supportive environment. And that's a very good place to be. And I imagine, I'm guessing here, that the university provides extra support for language lessons? There is a little bit. We have a centre des langues and extra support is provided for for students as well as staff. We're actually going to expand that. We've introduced this year a multilingualism policy and part of the implementation, which I'm looking after, involves actually creating more support for staff and for students in their languages in order to enable them to succeed at a higher level. Because, of course, it's not just the student, which I was thinking of initially. It is also, of course, the the professional teaching staff and perhaps the organisational staff which need that multilingual capacity as well. Mm-hmm. Can you give me a profile of the type of student you attract? Where would they come from and how can you become one? Well, 56% of our students are from outside Luxembourg. And within that group out of 56%, about 25% tend to be from outside the European Union. So there is actually no typical Luxembourg University student. Within Luxembourg University's Luxembourgish students, many will, of course, be in themselves students who've lived away at some point or who have a lot of languages at home, which they also benefit from. So effectively, if you think about the typical Luxembourg student, they tend to have a very international outlook. They tend to be extremely multilingual. I had a bit of fun last year at our welcome day where I asked people to put their hands up. So I said, who speaks only one language? Only about two people put their hands up and actually neither of them were first language English speakers, which was interesting. They didn't think of English as a, as a second language. And then I said two, a few people put their hands up, three. Now, normally, if you like, in a mono, monolingual country, that would be it. But actually, as I went up, more and more people put their hands 
hands up. And we peaked at about five. So actually, if you think about that, most students have got an enormous amount to give because they are diverse. And it's that diversity of experience, of culture, of languages that gives a University of Luxembourg student a real edge. It must be fascinating to teach a subject in many languages compared to a monolingual language. From your professional mindset, what does that mean from the professor's side in the teaching capacity? What do you think a student can benefit from? Do you feel they can learn in a broader way by by taking a subject and absorbing it through a variety of languages? I think it's very often said that if you learn a new language, you also learn a new way of thinking. And there are some ways of thinking, of analysing, of interpreting that actually come with a particular approach to grammar or a particular set of vocabulary or a particular literary or cultural tradition. And those are all real strengths that somebody can bring. In my experience, obviously, teaching French in England, predominantly in England over a period of 20 years, I was teaching in an extremely monolingual context. And you tended to have to justify the learning of languages. And over a period of about 14 years, our students became more and more self-selecting. So we moved from the student who happened to be good at French at school and decided to carry on, which is the way most of us have made our choices of university course, all the way through to students who are actually making a real effort and are going to university to learn languages from scratch. And that's quite a different set of intake. And actually, it's quite a different set of motivations. Also, one of the major features for students in my past career was the attraction of the year abroad. I have taught students in the past who'd never been abroad in their lives. And so for them, it was an enormous change, a massive challenge, and it brought an enormously enriching experience to their lives. Here at this university, of course, mobility is very important. When the university was founded in 2003, one of the concerns in the public debate about the foundation of a university was that young Luxembourgers needed to travel. And so the idea was that creating a university would actually dissuade young people in Luxembourg from travelling and would close their minds. So as a result of that, it is actually compulsory for all our students to have at least one semester of study abroad in the course of either their bachelor programme or their master's programme. And we expect our students to travel. Now, obviously, in the context of COVID, that has changed this year. But normally, we would expect about 600 students to be elsewhere in the world at any given point. And that's another really interesting feature of this university, that we build mobility into what we teach and we expect that movement outwards to happen as part of studies. That's a wonderful opportunity for any student. It's a wonderful idea as well to have that time abroad. And indeed, I know some students at the university here and they have absolutely loved that semester elsewhere. Thinking about that, collaborations, either European or more international, can you tell us how a young university like the University of Luxembourg can build its reputation, build those bonds, that network internationally, just from the point of view of alternating the students in other universities and also from a research point of view, to be taken seriously. Well, I think there's a number of very major research collaborations that we have. We also reflect it in our teaching in that quite a few of our bachelor programmes and master's programmes are shared with other universities. We are part of the Université de la Grande Région and we have some programmes that we share with TRIA, we share with METS and we share with universities further afield. We're launching, for example, a programme in études parlementaires at master's level, which has elements and 
shared elements of the programme with a university in Romania and a university in Canada. And therefore, this idea of collaboration is very strongly built into what we do. We also offer, for example, master's programmes in collaboration with universities in the US. Notably, we have one in logistics, which is connected with MIT. This enhances our quality of the education that we offer. It broadens our perspective and also, of course, it builds our reputation. And we're hoping that also, you know, as our students go out into the world, they will take that reputation with them and they will contribute to building it. Because very often in a university context, it's your graduates, it's your alumni that develop that reputation, that strengthen your reputation internationally and that ensure it's there and strong in the long term as well. We also, of course, work very closely with the European institutions and the fact that part of our campuses in Kirchberg is enormously important because we're next door, you know, to some of the major players, both in the European Union and in other aspects as well of banking and finance. So it makes perfect sense that you are working in service to the country, what is provided in the country, and that your alumni, the students, go off as the perfect marketing examples of the university and the education within. Now, changing tack a little bit. You are a medievalist. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that some people are asking you about the Black Death as a topic. <laughs> That's right. And it has been brought up in the media comparing COVID to the Black Death uh, in a very different landscape of mm-hmm. uh, 24-hour news and social media, etc. So what do you think about this? When you're asked about the Black Death and how does it compare to COVID, what's your response? It's very interesting. I think we need to look um, at great pandemics in history. I mean, the plague actually returned every few years um, for hundreds of years, actually, for about 300 to 400 years. And it's still active in the world for the moment. So I'm not really wishing that on anybody. And I would say that from that point of view, we need to be careful with making those comparisons. But there are, of course, a lot of similarities to be drawn, actually, with, for example, the major pandemics, the cholera pandemic, for example, in the 19th century. What you notice when you take the long historical view is the profound socioeconomic changes take a while to appear. They don't appear overnight. Obviously, you see the enormous stress on society. You see where the pressure points are. And those pressure points tend to stick around because obviously that's where particular tensions, particular conflicts have emerged. But actually, if we look at the Black Death, which killed up to 50% of the population of what was then the sort of statistically known world between 1347 and 1349, what you have is actually quite a profound socioeconomic change in terms of how the poor were treated and how they behaved. Basically, there were fewer poor people around to work. So the peasants began to ask for higher wages. They began to ask for remuneration for the work they were doing. Food was scarcer, therefore food was more attractive. People thought more carefully about how to gain it. And then you see a shift in power as well. Some of the major city-states, for example, you get a whole new generation of people emerge in charge. Some changes are very interesting. One of them, actually, in terms of, if you look at the Anglophone context, um, there's a very interesting theory that the English language starts to take over from predominantly use of French, more or less after the 1340s. And that could be connected to the fact that a lot of the people who taught French were priests and they tended to die in the period of the Black Death because they were very closely associated with the dying and the sick. If you think about the effect on the the health services now, that these are the most vulnerable groups. And so, in fact, a younger generation of priests emerged and perhaps they didn't have the language skills. And you can see these things that are sometimes 
true, sometimes a hypothesis, and you think, oh, that's very interesting. But actually, there's other research about the 19th century, which shows, again, actually quite profound changes in society, you know, more work, more attention paid to, you know, in the context of cholera and typhus, hygiene, the conditions of the working poor, and the conditions of people's housing definitely arise out of those. So it's an interesting perspective to have. That's an absolutely beautiful mini lecture. I think you'd be enticing anybody to join your course if you were teaching one. I'm sitting here in awe of, of this knowledge and the socioeconomic changes. My first question is, where in the world does the Black Death occur right now? Actually, it's still there where it always was. It's a bacterial disease. It isn't a virus. And it lives naturally in a population of small rodents. I think they may be gerbils. So if you're looking at your cute little gerbil or your hamster, actually bear in mind that they naturally live with this illness, which actually apparently, according to recent genetic research, hasn't changed much. Basically, it's a region in Central Asia which corresponds now to the border with Kazakhstan. And that's where the plague has always been, and that's where it still is, and that's where occasionally it appears and moves around the world. And the reason why it moves around the world is because of people. When human beings move around, they tend to take things with them. And as we know, people move around and they take viruses with them as well. Well, I'll be sure not to pet any gerbils any time I visit Kazakhstan. <laughs> now, you also mentioned just now the profound socio-economic changes that over that period of history took a long time to change. But I feel during this period of COVID, and I'm pretty sure most teaching staff from primary up to university or beyond, had to change rather suddenly, along with a lot of workplaces, of course, and basically everybody had to change their lifestyle. So can you tell me... The sudden effect that COVID had on the teaching within the university, how did the university adapt and what will happen this coming term for students? We adapted remarkably fast. Now, one of the reasons why we adapted remarkably fast is because we were watching how the disease was behaving and how people were behaving across the world in response to it. We knew it was coming. We started to put things together about two weeks before confinement came. In all honesty, I thought personally that we had another week and we didn't. I remember filming for our first ever virtual open day. I did my little film. I think it was on the Wednesday or Thursday. And then on the Friday, I was walking around the learning centre on the Friday morning with one of the librarians and we were deciding how to deal with the transfer from fully open business as usual with a little bit of pre-confinement going on into moving that afternoon completely online and allowing people to stay until the end of the day and then moving online as soon as possible afterwards. And then we could see Claude Meisch was doing a press conference at that moment, at which, in fact, it was announced that libraries were closing. And so we moved online that afternoon. And by the Monday, the whole university had to move to online teaching. I'd sent an email the week before, about 10 days before, saying, please prepare. Um, everybody was beginning to prepare because everybody's on social media. They're all in touch with their colleagues all over the world who were beginning to make the same transition. Our big advantage was that we had a very good video conferencing setup and we were able to trigger that one into teaching mode rather than just meetings mode. Almost at once, I had about five minutes of training and then I did my first WebEx call and then that was it from then on for the next seven months. Some bachelor programmes, especially which were quite large, needed a little bit of support, a tiny bit of time, a couple of days more. But most people moved very, very swiftly onto remote teaching. And we were 
quite firm about the form of support that people would have in terms of software, but we were quite firm also about the fact that the most important thing was to think about the students and to make sure that they kept that connection with their studies and that they were supported in that way. In terms of teaching, therefore, we moved towards exams reasonably confidently. We made the decision to do completely remote exams. There was an exception, which was for some medicine exams. Everything else had to happen remotely. And so it went. And actually, to be honest, I'm very impressed. And I'm extremely proud of my colleagues that they managed to pull this off and support students and keep themselves going in a really critical period. That sounds like a fantastically successful transformation and such a sudden one that was necessary as well to keep that engagement with the students and just to change the complete way of teaching in about two weeks, you said. (laughs) Quite an undertaking. So looking back on that, reflecting on that, what were the positive takeaways from the sudden digital modes of teaching and engagement and how are you going to use those positives to develop it this coming term? One of the things that was very important is that the university had developed a digital strategy the year before. And as a result of that, everybody knew what they wanted out of digital technology. They knew how they wanted to move towards blended learning. But of course, there's a difference between thinking this is a really good idea and you'd like to do it and actually doing it. So some of my first conversations in September were, we need to plan ahead. How would it be possible? And then suddenly in March, we were doing it. So one of the things we learned almost immediately Immediately is that actually the contact aspect is very delicate and that you have to maintain that human contact in whatever way you can. Some colleagues, for example, would open a class half an hour early in order to allow the students to talk to each other because otherwise they didn't have the opportunity to interact. Some things became clear to us and we're going to take them forward with us. One of them is that the traditional two-hour, three-hour lecture doesn't work on a remote format and so shortening lectures, creating what's called flipped learning or the flipped classroom where the lecture is available online and when the students get together in simultaneous space they discuss it. Um, That was something that automatically happened in some of the programmes. People thinking more about continuous assessment rather than the traditional sit-down exam. More use of oral exams. Obviously oral exams are important in Luxembourg, it's a tradition, but actually it was developed in a particular way in order to replace the more the more vulnerable, if you like, written, sitting down, simultaneous exam, which became more difficult to manage. Just thinking about that and thinking about the interaction in the smaller groups or large groups, perhaps, of students asking questions. I know that for Harvard Business School, as part of their business masters, you have to speak in the lectures. That's part of the grading. And statistically, women usually speak out less. Have you seen any changes, if it's gender related or to use the word perhaps shyer, more vulnerable people didn't have the confidence in a lecture hall to ask a question? Has that changed with digital interaction? I think that's very interesting. We haven't actually looked into the gender implications or impact of this move to online teaching. What we have noticed, however, and this is very important and it is something where 
taking with us is that it helped with the confidence of some students linguistically. If a student isn't very confident about, for example, their French, and they're in a lecture hall and they're confronted with a two-hour lecture in French with occasional bits of explanation in English, they will be very reluctant about asking questions. They might ask their friend to translate for them afterwards, or they might ask questions after the class when they do a kind of debrief to make sure that they've understood everything. When you move on to a more blended classroom approach, those students can express themselves in French and therefore practice their expression. And also they're in a less judgmental environment because they're discussing with their peers. And the lecturer isn't there to correct them. The lecturer is there to communicate with them. So as a result of that, it does change the dynamic and it makes it possible for a little bit more linguistic support to happen, which normally wouldn't be there. There's other advantages as well. If you pre-record a lecture, for example, the student can stop, scroll back, watch again, look at the translation of a particular word on their phone and so on. So actually they can learn at their own pace a little bit more, which again is immensely useful for somebody who's learning a particular language and who needs to work on it. And just thinking about your experience as a professor in various universities and now with your role as vice rector, Mm -hmm. which is not so much a teaching role, how do you view the modes of learning and how it has changed since our time at university? It's a very interesting thing compared to my time at university when obviously I was an undergraduate in the 1980s and I actually was in my first post when the internet was brought in and so I had the extraordinary moment of being taught how to go onto this thing called the World Wide Web and see pictures appear on my screen. To now there's some immensely important changes. Our students actually read and write a lot because they use reading and writing all the time when they're exchanging on WhatsApp or whatever. They are also, of course, extremely visually informed and they're an extremely visually sensitive generation. The result of that is that I've found that I've included more and more images in my teaching over the years. And whereas, you know, if I go back to the late 90s, it was regarded as a bit self-indulgent and a bit strange to bring a picture in and to let that do the talking. Nowadays, I would actually always use a visual support because, again, coming back to the issue of multilingualism, people can recognise and interact with an image in a way that actually they don't have to worry about the exact subtle implications of the piece of writing they're looking at. What you then do is you move from the image or from film analysis to textual analysis relatively smoothly, actually, I find in a way that works. Whereas in the past, it used to be the other way around. You used to go from textual analysis towards film analysis and say, these are images, there's a way of looking at them. So we've flipped around, actually, which is very interesting. Another major result of this is the treatment of time. A couple of years ago, somebody who was doing some training talked about the app generation. And she said, we're now dealing with a student who, if they don't get an answer from us immediately, thinks there's a malfunction. And that's very definitely changed from, you know, the old days where you might send an email, you might wait three days, you might send a reminder. Of course, you found that frustrating, but it isn't the same as having somebody who expects an answer and an intuitive one within seconds. And so we really have had to bring in some quite strict statements about 
when we're available to answer emails, when we're available to answer the phone and so on, because the expectations have changed. And that's not because we've produced a difficult younger generation. It's simply a reflection of the technological world in which young people live now, which was not the world in which many of us lived when we were growing up. I have this image of us being malfunctioning entities, <laughs> computer not on, brain not on, because I can't answer something in about a minute, which is basically my entire life. <laughs> Moving to you now, I, I mean, you're incredibly successful. You have your own two daughters and you've been in this position now, this job here in Luxembourg for one year. So a year ago, the world was quite different and mm -hmm. you arrived here with your younger daughter whilst your husband remained in the UK with your eldest daughter who is going through her A-levels. So yes. tell us about your journey and how you managed to suddenly move here as a mother uh, with this fantastic job and a 13, 12-year-old daughter, I guess she was then, yep. and then leaving your older daughter behind in the UK who is facing A-levels. Yes, I think it was basically only made possible because of the technological world in which we are now, because we were able to speak every day on the phone or on WhatsApp. So we would spend quite a long time each day talking. It is difficult, obviously. And I think from one of those aspects, actually, it's possibly the only way in which coronavirus has been positive in that we were saying, OK, we need to get Get through this year. Um, my older daughter would finish her A-levels, then she would come to Luxembourg and she would do a gap year and she would get her family life back. Instead of which, she was here in March with no A-level to look forward to, no prom, doing quizzes with her friends, you know, every other night. And that changed things quite considerably. So actually the idea of doing a gap year began to seem a great deal less attractive when you've effectively had one for seven months. She luckily did very well out of her A-levels. We were not as badly affected by the problems with A-levels as, as other people were and certainly as some of her friends were. So she's now going to university. But we made some very specific changes. In terms of being in this position of being, if you like, distanced from each other and trying to keep things connected. Obviously, we had the luxury of being able to, to travel in both directions every two weeks. We were not transatlantic. But it does make you aware of the importance of keeping communications going. And keeping that stability going can sometimes be quite interesting. It can be as simple as watching a film on Netflix at the same time, you know, in two different countries and things like that, and commenting on it. And, and those things, I think, are invaluable. And I think that I was very aware aware of that right the way through lockdown, that actually we were able to survive lockdown and not go completely crazy because of these things that actually normally I would criticise my children for spending too much time on their screens or relying too much on films or whatever. But actually, I think it was very useful in cementing us both pre-COVID and in the lockdown period. It's wonderful to hear a positive story about COVID and how it brought you literally together out of two countries during that time from March onwards. Being a female academic is notoriously hard when it's uh, combined with raising a family because there's no real let up in the pressure to publish papers and continue your own research. So do you think that's changing at all for females? Because it is currently only females that can have children. Mm -hmm. yes. And what's your advice to women who may want to be academics and also have a family. It's a very interesting experience to have. Um, there is this notorious and I'm afraid very real phenomenon, which is the leaky pipeline, where many more women 
start to do a master's course than finish. Many more women will drop out of a doctorate. And then by the time you reach the postdoctoral level and the early career, then, you know, you're left to actually with, a, in some fields, a minority of women. That is a direct reflection of the fact that it is very hard. A lot of young academics have to be prepared to be very mobile and that may or may not work in the direction of how somebody wants to live their life. The advice I would give, actually, is to be as open as possible. Now, that depends on the working environment in which you are. But to be honest, when I started at the University of Bristol, I was one of only two women in a department that then had about 14 men um, (laughs) or people. When I'd been at Queen's University Belfast, there were, I think, two of us were women lecturers, both the youngest members of the department who were full lecturers as opposed to lectrices, and then the rest were all men. Um, And then the balance changed. And when I was in Reading, we ended up, in fact, with a minority of men in our department. We were a very different thing by then. We were an amalgamated languages department and all the professors except for one were women. So actually there's been a generational change. Right the way through, I've always been quite open. I've always been quite assertive. I have actually insisted on doing things like staying full time, but I've made time in order to look after my children in a way that didn't damage them, I hope. I've been quite realistic about conferences. I've limited the number of conferences over the years to perhaps two or three really good ones over the year rather than going to 15. I've tried to make sure that the things that you can do are the ones that I've kept going on, like publishing, keeping publishing constant, one publication a year if you possibly can. These are things that, if you like, are a kind of career hygiene that keep you going. But I always found that, regardless of gender, my line managers, my heads of departments were always very, very supportive. Some of them were going through experiences of having children themselves, and that always meant that keeping the dialogue open and not assuming that somebody is going to be hostile is always worthwhile. It is important, however, to make sure that there's flexibility in your work schedule, that people leave you alone when the school holidays are on, and there will always be somebody who doesn't get it. So from that point of view, you can be assertive, it's good practice, but you also have to learn sometimes to be slightly clever. And, you know, there are some things you will have to sacrifice, but I think it's At the end of the day, it's worth it. And when I came out of my first maternity leave with a group of friends, we all agreed with each other. We felt we were better mothers because we were working than if we had given up. And I think that's a very, very important message to give your children as well, because historically women have always worked. They just happened to work either outside the home or inside the home. And if I looked back, actually, I had a minority of women who didn't work (laughs) in my family. And I think that's the way it is. It just depends how you define work. It's a lovely example to show your two daughters as well. Just moving on from that thought, really, you mentioned a lot of women, not just women, who drop out or actually this COVID time has allowed a lot of people to reflect on their careers Mm -hmm. or the working from home nature or what it is that they want to do. Universities are known as this third tier of learning, Mm -hmm. but for many people... And it is often women coming out of having a family where they feel more vulnerable at that time in their lives. And actually, for many women, 
the workplace doesn't want them back mm-hmm. in a flexible yep. capacity. It doesn't always work out for them. I also include men in this, of course. Many people want to continue learning. Mm-hmm. They want to think about changing careers. So do you feel the university life, perhaps the University of Luxembourg or beyond, is set up to accommodate lifelong learning? Or do you feel there should be even a fourth tier of learning constructed? We do actually have lifelong learning at the core of what we do. Um, We still have what are called formation continue, that's professional level programmes that are on offer. They're mostly at master's level, but not exclusively. There is also, of course, the University of Luxembourg Competence Centre, the ULC, which is closely connected to the university. And one of my tasks is, in fact, to, to liaise with the director of the ULC. What I would say is this, some of our best students are very often our mature students because they've experienced things, they, they've got genuine motivation, they know what they want out of their studies and they can actually be very often a very good presence in the class. They can often offer support to the younger students, especially the less mature ones or the ones who are going through a difficult time. And also, of course, the, the younger students also see a role model. You know, they see somebody actually who has had different life experiences and is very often very interested actually in what the younger people around them are learning. So on all of those fronts, we have mature students in standard degrees and we also have lifelong learning offers. I would always encourage somebody to return to learning because at the end of the day, what you're going to get out of that is partly the actual qualification, which may help professionally, but also the sense of pride and in an achievement. And of course, not everybody has been to university as a young person. For some people, their path through education starts later, after a significant amount of time when they've accumulated life experiences, which are extremely valuable as well. And those things are things that people can draw on and they can build on. And there can be some quite dramatic changes in people's interests, in what people want to do, and also in what they can bring to the society around them later on in life. And that's very important as well. That's lovely to hear, Catherine, and that openness from the university to take on the mature student, whatever age mature might mean, to learn at any stage of their life and to be noted for that life experience, especially if they haven't had the chance to study to university level in their life beforehand. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today at RTL Today. All of the details of the university will be found in the article attached to this and on the RTL Today site. We wish all the teaching staff, all of the organisational staff and of course the students the very best start to this academic year. Thank you for listening. I'm very grateful for the downloads of the podcast. Always happy to hear, receive any feedback or ideas for the show. It's always a privilege to meet the variety of people who make up the fabric of Luxembourg and people who can develop our ideas further. So let's hope COVID doesn't affect this academic year quite so much for the workplace, for the family life and for the teaching. So until next time, have a great week. 